Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. Are we doing this this time? I, I mean, I, third time's a charm? I, I think we're doing it this time. The red light's on, the, the, the little squiggly lines are going, the Did dials are... the you needles. volume up? Because I know you don't like to hear me sometimes. The needles are bouncing back and forth, so it, it looks like things are actually working now. It's when you go tap, tap, tap on the uh, computer screen, like they used to do in the old dial days, that's... Um, you know, many, many, many years ago, I had a buddy who, who was talking about flying on uh, an, a Coast Guard H-3 Pelican helicopter, which is this big, massive helicopter. And when he was flying, he was flying up in Alaska, of all places. Um, he was a passenger. And at the time, this helicopter was already like 30 years old. This, this was not a new helicopter. He said it was the scariest thing he had ever done. Because he's sitting there in a passenger cabin, and first off, the thing is shaking and vibrating so much. He's watching the screws back, back out. themselves out of the, the, the panels in the overhead. And at one point, he leaned over and looked into the cockpit, and he watches the co-pilot leaned over, looked at the pilot, tapped a gauge, shrugged his shoulders, and they kept going. <laughs> <laughs> he said it was the most terrifying flight he'd ever been on. Oh, my. <laughs> Well, I mean, I can tell you that flying in that storm the other a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. in the tiny plane. I mean, and it was a regional jet, but it was one of the tiny regional jets. Mm -hmm. And the turbulence was such and where they could fly, they couldn't get above the turbulence. We had to fly basically in it. Um, they passed out drinks at one point and I'm looking at them going, this is the stupidest thing I have ever held in my hand as we're going. I mean, it was roller coaster and you'd hit the zero G's going oh, down geez. and I'm like, this is, this is kind of stupid. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a rough trip where nothing of my travel plans went as scheduled. Yeah. That was uh, a bit of a disaster. It was, but the meeting was really good. So that's all I can hold on to so let's move on to to motorsports yes things that are not in the air yeah we and and actually it is truly motorsports this week because we've got a couple of things before we jump into formula one first as you'll recall a few weeks ago we spoke about the new spec that is coming to formula e that will allow them to go a full race without swapping cars because the batteries will be big enough to accommodate this Yes, but our electrical, our personal staff electrical engineer corrected you on whether or not volts added distance or whatever. I was reading the article. <laughs> I profess no expertise in the electronic nature and how the electrons move from one end of the wire to the other end of the wire. I just expect... I just think that it's very important to point out that we are probably the only motorsports podcast that has an electrical engineer on staff. Okay. He probably doesn't know he's on staff, but, you know. All right, then. <laughs> well, the question then becomes, what do you do with the batteries for the current generation of cars? Well, because I they're not dead. Well, obviously, you use them to run the torches in the factory. Well, 
according to Alexander Agog, they're going to find ways to actually go and recycle these batteries. He says that the batteries can go for a lot longer if you're not racing them in a, in a super competitive environment. To be used in a corporate lab or something like that, these batteries have years of life in front of them. He said they could be used in schools or to store solar energy and so on. We'll definitely be using them, and they're an asset to belongs to Formula E. He said the series owns these batteries. <laughs> That's actually pretty cool. It is. I mean, how much of any other series do you know of that can possibly, or, or is anybody even considering repurposing for other use? Well, I would hope that they do repurpose for other youths on as many things as they can. Um, I mean, we talk often about okay. Formula One using technologies, but actual items, I think that we don't get a lot of. Yeah, bits and pieces from the car, not only do they not reuse them, but they sit and store them just to make sure that nobody else gets their hands on them and they take a look at them. And Pirelli destroys the tires whether they're used or not. That part, I think, is just crazy. I mean, yeah, they brought wet weather tires to Bahrain that they probably have never, ever, 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 ever used, and Pirelli's going to destroy him after this weekend. I know. And that, just, that part just, it's like, you know, that that's not a good um, ecological lesson at all. Um, but just as a side commentary, this idea of storing stuff so that nobody else could use them or look at them is mm -hmm. really not unique to Formula One. Oh, it's not. I mean, apparently, somewhere in the desert, and people are digging this up now as an archaeological project, um, there is the entire set to the Ten Commandments or Cleopatra One, I don't remember which, that Cecil B. Yeah, DeMille had buried... Um, because he didn't, because it was so common to reuse sets in that mm -hmm. early days of the movies, he didn't want anybody else to reuse his set, so he just buried it. It was cheaper to bury that stuff than it was to destroy it. Like, <laughs> you know, in you know, three hundred, four hundred years, archaeologists are going to come and dig and decide that in the early nineteen hundreds we had a society of Egyptians in Southern California. <laughs> But anyway, that's what Claire's brother does is store all of the stuff for Williams. Yeah. They catalog all of the old bits and bobs. Yeah. And again, I, I don't quite understand how you would, you know, repurpose a wheel nut from a Formula One car. But just saying. I, I mean, there is know. the Force India thing deal with, um, and we've talked about them a couple of times, the, uh, remac the, the furniture remanufacture place. It takes Formula One bits and turns that into fur into furniture. I was going to say so, wheel nuts can be there's some sort of skid plates, some sort of accessory piece like a candle holder or something. <laughs> I don't remember what they did, but I mean there are some pieces that I think you could probably turn into architectural interest items. But you know what you could melt down and repurpose that would be awesome to see them start doing that. But I just love the idea that Formula E batteries could run schools. I mean, yeah, <laughs> think about that. Powering somebody's data center at some mm -hmm. point, yeah. Um, hopefully, backup power. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't want it to. You not get, get to fifteen race minutes of compute, and that's it. <laughs> Since it can't go race distance, I hope it's not your main power <laughs> source. <laughs> So over to WEC. So this weekend is what they are calling the prologue over at Cir Circuit Paul Ricard. <laughs> For the rest of the world, we this is testing. testing. <laughs> we 
testing. <laughs> well, um, the last remaining constructor in the series, Toyota, um, set a time that was between, d- depending on which report you listen to, four to five seconds faster than anybody else. Now, by the way, Toyota is also the team that uh, Fernando, Alonso, Fernando Alonso is going to be driving for, and I'm kind of surprised that they didn't reschedule the prologue so that <laughs> Fernando could drive. Well, you know, maybe it's not as important for Fernando to be in the prologue. Um, that sounds so snotty. It, it just does. does. Um, but <clears throat> four to five seconds, I bet the pundits are over themselves. I mean, like tripping over themselves to talk about how this is Toyota Gear and they're going to be rocking these these tracks. And it's guaranteed that Fernando is going to win the WEC championship, correct? Well, you know, at first, at first glance, that's what everyone was like is what the heck did Toyota do that is putting them so far ahead of the rest of the field? Toyota admitted that the car is not currently in compliance with the balance of power regulations that WEC has in place for the races. And and this was done deliberately. It was done for development purposes. They won't tell us exactly what they're doing and what they're trying. But for development purposes, they did not meet the balance of power requirements for the testing period. And they cannot get penalized for it because it's not a race. Yeah. Okay, so... Do you think this is their testing methodology? Let's figure out how to make the fastest possible car, and then we'll start taking bits and bobs off to make it within regulation. Well, I mean, that, that's, that... that's one of the things you got to wonder is because I guess during the nighttime sessions, the car was brought into compliance, and it was not quicker. Um, now, where it, it, it placed compared to everybody else once it was in compliance, I don't know. I haven't seen those results yet. Um, but it was not faster than what they did when they had it out of compliance. Mm. See, those rules exist for a reason. To break them? (laughs) To push the limits? I mean, that's what this is all about, right? To keep everybody in line. To make it fair. I don't know. But it's not fair, so move on. (laughs) Okay. So over to Formula One, before we really jump in, Let's first have a quick recap of where things stand coming in out of week one, race one, of the Fantasy GP series. After the first race in the 2018 Formula One season, here are the standings in the Bloke and the Bird Show's Fantasy GP League. Michael's Mach 5 racing team is in first with 154 points. Patricia's The Bird team is in second with 132 points. Bill's Team Rocket is in third with 128 points. The Boys Moonlit Black Cats team is fourth with 105 points. And Richard's Team Fly Fast is currently in fifth with just 70 points. Even though you've missed a race, you can still join in by going to FantasyGP.com and entering the league code 148-31491. Very nice. Of course, because I'm winning. (laughs) (laughs) Will you stop doing this when I start beating you? No. (laughs) No, we're going to try and and make it sound at least slightly professional, almost kind of like. Whoa. You're like up in your game and other people should up theirs? Something like that. (laughs) At least until the C&D notices start coming in, then we'll figure something else out. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that we should start opening our mail if 
those C and D notices should possibly be coming in. Nah. Nah. She nah. Not start why would now. you do that? <laughs> why, why not? That? Why start now? <laughs> okay, so you are winning our fantasy league. I am. Um, don't know how it's going to shake out coming this weekend. Again, we are recording between qualifying and the race, and actually, as we record, the race has not yet happened. No, it's two hours away from yes. the race beginning. So I don't know when we're going to watch it because our Sunday afternoons are kind of busy, as always. Your Sunday afternoons are kind of busy. I could sit and watch it. Nanner, nanner, nanner. But we did get a request. Yes. Um, Richard asked for an overview of how qualifying works. Because even yeah. though he has entered our fantasy league, and I got to give him props, apparently he does not watch the races. So he is going strictly on what he's learned from our show to enter his fantasy prediction. So so based on that, <laughs> how well he does is a direct relation to how well we discuss and cover the races. So if he's in last, that means we suck. Oh. <laughs> this is what he's saying. I hope that's not really what he's saying. <laughs> All right. But he asked us to explain how qualifying works because since he doesn't watch the races, he doesn't know how qualifying works. So we're going to take a few minutes and just go through the qualifying process. Now, for starters, everything that we're talking about right now is how it works when there is a dry qualifying session. Correct. Okay. Um, We'll we'll get into how things change if there's rain and and all of that stuff in a little bit. Um, Three sessions. Q1, Q2, Q3, and they run in that order. One, two, and three is first. Um, Q1 lasts 18 minutes, and at the end of which time, the five slowest drivers are eliminated from qualifying and 15 advance to Q2. Now, any driver whose best Q1 lap time exceeds 107% of the fastest time set during that session fails to qualify and may only race at the steward's discretion. So what that means is that if you are so slow that you are more than 107% behind the fastest time that was set, they can tell you it doesn't matter where you ended up, you are not driving on Sunday. Okay, so for example, to give some hard numbers to mm-hmm. this, in Bahrain, the fastest time was a <clears throat> 1.28 and some hundredths of seconds. Mm-hmm. The slowest time <coughs> was 1.31 seconds. One minute, three, 31 seconds, mm-hmm. and tenths and hundredths. The 107% time was 1 minute, 35 seconds. So... That gives you the idea of where those things fall um, and why we have not, in our time, I believe we've only had one car fall outside the 107 second, 107% rule. I want to say it was either 2010 or 2011 that HRT had a race or two that they fell outside of it and were not allowed to run. And that in 2012, there was concern that they would not be able to set a time and or that that they would not be able to to make it within that 107 percent but we're still allowed to run Mm -hmm. um we've had a couple of situations also where um cars have been damaged and the marshals and race control has made the decision that based on the practice times that were set that they believe that the car could still meet the 107 percent 
limit. So they allowed them to race anyway, but started from the back, even though they were not able to set a time in qualifying. Now, the key, the reason for the 107% deal is the thought is that anything slower than 107% of the fastest time would not just impede traffic, but would be a danger on the track. Right. It is like putting a Yugo in the middle of a racetrack. You're going to have a problem. Well, the difference, though, is that the Yugo would be stopped. There might be two guys behind it pushing it. That would be even scarier. Yeah. That only happens in Singapore (laughs) when we have man on track. Yeah. So, Q2 now. After a short break, the times are reset, and the 15 remaining cars run in a 15-minute session, at the end of which the slowest five are eliminated from qualifying, leaving 10 to progress to Q3. Now, for every one of these sessions, they're essentially run independently. So if you end up at in first place in Q1, that time doesn't matter when you get to Q2 or Q3. Correct. the only point where those positions matter are where the drop points are. So 15, 16, 17, 18, nine, or excuse me, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20 coming out of Q3, that is their starting position on the grid for the race. For the folks in Q2, again, it's the next 10 positions where you end up if you don't make it to Q3. That is where you start for the race. Now, this is where it gets a little bit more complex, though. Because for the folks who, the the top 10 in Q2, the ones who make it up to Q3, the fastest time that they set in Q2 on whichever tire that they were running at the time, that is the tire that they have to start the race in, in dry conditions. It only applies to the top 10 who make it into Q3. So again, I'll say that again. The tire that you're driving when you set your fastest lap in Q2 is the tire you start the race on on Sunday. So if you burn up your tire, if you go and push it as hard as humanly possible and tear up those tires, that means you're starting the race on Sunday with really bad tires. You flat spot them Mm -hmm. somewhere along the way. I mean, that's part of the strategy. And we have seen, especially in last year, Red Bull kept trying a strategy where they would use the – harder tire of the two compounds that were mm-hmm. going to be used in the way they would try to use the harder compound in q2 because keep in mind you only have to qualify ninth or tenth <coughs> in q2 and as long as you're above the cut you move on to q3 and then you can use whatever tire but the idea was to use the harder compound in q2 for your fastest lap so that you could go longer in the race right before you had to make that first pit stop. So there's some strategy as to what tire happens in Q2. So possibly you run into a situation where you run on the softer, faster tire in Q2. You've worn it down a little bit because it's used. Now you're in a situation where come race day, you need to get off that tire as quick as possible. And because you've got to make that early pit stop, what might have been a one-stop race is now a two-stop race or you know what might have been a two-stop is now a three-stopper and you've got to factor that in right um so there's some there's definite strategy that happens with that call on the tire now that limitation with tires only impacts the folks who have qualified to go to q3 if you are still down from 11th and below Come race day, you have a free choice of which which of the available tires for the race you can run. Correct. 
So that's the benefit to, okay, if you don't make it up to Q3, you've got some more flexibility in, in your strategy that you do not necessarily have up at Q3. I remember an interview with Nico Hulkenberg at one point where he was saying that it was almost better to qualify 11th mm-hmm. than to qualify 10th. Yeah, like those were his. That that was where he was going to fall. Was in that ten and eleven spot, and it was like shoot for eleventh because then I got I got the spot and the tire choice. So now after a further break, the times are reset again, and Q three, the final twelve minute session, is held to decide pole position and the starting order for the top ten grid places. Now, this is where things again get a little bit more complex. The situation that we ran into this weekend with Lewis and having an unscheduled gearbox change meant that he was guaranteed a five-place grid penalty. So even if he qualified on pole with the fastest time, he could not start higher than fifth. Sixth. One plus five is six. No, they would have put you in fifth because that one counts. That's a BBC, uh, Channel 4 said he would not start higher than 6th. They said it like four or five times. Okay. It doesn't matter because I believe he's starting ninth. Yeah. Yeah, it was not impressive at all. So. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, some of the other things that you, you want to know about this. Any driver whose car stops on the circuit during the qualifying session will not be permitted to take any further part in the session. So either they will at that point keep their last set time or if they didn't set a time they automatically are in last place for that session um any car which stops on the circuit during the qualifying session and which is returned to the pits before the end of the session will be held in park Ferme until the end of the session this is in contrast to practice where cars returned to the pits are permitted to rejoin the session um so in a dry condition that's how it works if it rains, the tire issue goes right out the window. So all of those things we just talked about with tires don't count. Mm-hmm. So if, if there is a wet Q2 or even a wet Q1 or a Q3, actually, I think if there's a Q3, it doesn't have an impact. Or excuse me, if there's a Q1, it doesn't have an impact if that's wet. But Q2 and Q3, if they're wet, the whole tire selection thing goes right out the window and on race day you get a free choice of what tires you want to start with the same opposite happens if it's dry for qualifying and wet for the start of the race right you would then start on wet or intermediate tires you you start on the safest tires for the race conditions and the tire you have free choice when you come off of those tires onto dry tires as to which compound you want to run um Right. And there is an added risk of a wet qualifying. There's an added risk? An added risk. Okay. Because depending on what the weather conditions can be, and it's also a risk of when there's wreck, major wrecks and things like mm-hmm. that that happen, you could red flag a session. Yeah, you, you run into a risk. Can, if there's any kind of red or yellow flag, depending on when you get out into the session um, – if there's an incident on track that requires either the session to be stopped early or you have to slow down to respect yellow flags, that can throw your whole qualifying out of whack completely like we saw in, what was that, 2013 in Monaco? 
with Nico Rosberg going down the safety lane because he, he overshot a turn knowing that Lewis was behind him and possibly had a chance to take pole. Right. Um, so typically the strategy is get out in a session fast, first and fast, get a time, lay down a time, come back to the pits, tweak, change, do what they need to do, and do another set towards the end of that session, no matter which session it is. That tends to be the the methodology. Not really so much in Q1. Q1, um, the the slower teams try to get out there as quick as possible to get as much running in as possible. The faster teams don't quite rush to get out there. Well, they have more time, too. Yeah. But... It, it they are watching the weather conditions because um, I believe if I understand it correctly with a yellow flag the time won't stop but with a red flag the time will stop they red flag the course yes. but they may or may not start that session again with a red flag if they red flag it early they may start it with the time starting you know with the time well, remaining wh- what or they you, could cut it off wh- what you end up with is that when once you're down under about two minutes left in the session if they red flag a session if they restart the session there may not be enough time for the cars to get through their out lap to actually start a time lap to get in underneath it right. um so that's where the challenge is um so that's the way qualifying works. Um, it's pretty much a, a three-stage system where they're getting the slowest cars off the track each round. Um, to make it into Q3 is a very big deal, especially for the mid-pack teams. Um, they're fighting for essentially the last three or four spaces in Q3. Um, so that's a big, a big deal for them. And th- the other thing to mention about qualifying is that Teams are able to make changes to suspension, ride height, aerodynamics, pretty much anything they want right up until the point that the car crosses the line that signifies the exit of the garage at the start of the qualifying session. So they can push it out and maybe not roll the car out until two minutes left before the end of Q1 because they've been doing all kinds of work on the car. That's not a problem. But once they cross that line, that car is technically in park ferme, and other than some minor tweaks to, say, um, tire pressures um, and fuel load, any changes they make to the car at that point incurs a penalty unless it's a like-for-like replacement due to damage. Correct. And that comes into play especially when there's accidents in free practice three because, remember, Mm -hmm. free practice three occurs – on the day, in most cases, on the day of qualifying. So you run it into the wall in free practice three. Hi, I can use English. (laughs) Your team is rebuilding your car as fast and furiously as possible to get you to Q1. And if they're not quite done, they can eke into those 18 minutes to get you out. And, of course, we actually witnessed that live and in person because the qualifying system is fairly similar in IndyCar on a road track. We've gone through that there's Yeah, it works a little different, but yeah. It's fairly similar, but we watched it at Mid-Ohio one year when Max Chilton destroyed his car, and we watched them put his car back together in two hours. Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty impressive how they can do this. It's... um, slightly more complicated than a lego set and there's a whole lot of wire ties (laughs) that hold these cars together which amazes me yeah Mm. 
So coming out of Australia, one of the big complaints, as there tends to be coming out of Australia, is, hey, there's not a whole lot of passing out there. <laughs> well, it is a, it's technically a road course. It's through a park, but the streets are not wide. I mean, Daniel Ricardo said we also made our cars wider. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the comment that David Cothard made this particular week and said, if you put carts out there, there'd be tons of passing. Well, yeah, and, and <laughs> there, there was video last year that somebody had posted of the classic Formula One cars from the 50s and the 60s driving around Monaco, another circuit that has been criticized roundly as being uh, processional and not being a lot of passing. And the classic cars, because they're so skinny, they were, I mean, it was a really exciting run and a lot of passing and a lot of dodging for for position and all of that stuff because they don't need as much space. Right. You know, when it's only a meter wide. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So there was a meeting on Friday. Uh, It was called by FIA's Nicholas Tombasi's in part as a response to the Australian Grand Prix and the lack of overtaking. Um, They were looking at two proposals to possibly put into place for 2019 um, to maybe hopefully make things better. So the two proposals that they were looking at was the potential introduction of a bigger and higher rear wing flap intended to increase the DRS effect. Yeah, you think that's going to go over really well. And changes to the front wing to make it easier for drivers to follow the car ahead of them. So given the fact that Ross Braun and a lot of the fans don't really like DRS, that wasn't going to be very well received. Um, The teams were brought together, however... Neither of these ideas really generated much support from the teams either. Mm. Um, It was acknowledged that DRS is an easy way to address the problem, but like we said, fans don't like it. Ross Braun doesn't like it. So the teams are like, they're they're not really behind that one either. Um, But the other odd one is that the teams said that it's too late in the season to make changes to the aerodynamic package for 2019. Now, keep in mind that the way the rules are written, they have until the end of this month to do whatever they want with the rules. And then after that, it's just a matter of unanimous vote by the teams, and they can even make changes later in the season for twenty for next season. Right. Yeah. They're going to have to make some changes. I mean, that's the way it's going to have to be. Well, it gets even uglier and—, and I think this gives you a little bit of an understanding of just where the team's heads are at this point. Um, There was little appetite for a postponement until 2020 because that would mean they'd have to basically design a whole new aero package yet again for something that probably is only going to last for a year Mm -hmm. because 2021 is the big rule change. Um, And the teams were asked to contribute data for future research. um, But at that point, the discussion shifted to – how irritated the teams are with Martin Marson Budkowski and Laurent Mekis leaving the FIA after getting all kinds of data like this and going to Renault and Ferrari. And the teams don't want to share data now. I can understand that. Yeah. I can understand that. I mean, I you got to you got to know that leaving the FIA and going to a team was awful. There's got to be a way to not allow that. Yeah. 
So the other meeting that was held on Friday, much bigger meeting, much more important, um, that was Liberty Media presenting to the teams their roadmap for 2021 and beyond and where they want to bring the sport to. Mm. We know this happened. We've heard bits and pieces of it. Um, we, one of the things is supposedly uh, a cost cap changes to uh, the prize money distribution and things like that. But we don't have specifics. So the initial impression that we were getting was that this was a high-level meeting and it was this is what we're doing, get on a bus or go away. Mm-hmm. Now, we've heard word from Christian Horner that actually it was one of the more civil and productive meetings on the topic that he has been involved in, um, exactly what that means. However, what we've also found out is that the teams apparently have agreed not to debate this in public. Correct. Which is kind of stunning, considering how Formula One tends to work. I wonder if that was not one of the first things that got talked about is, okay, guys, we've not done this well in the past. We're going to try something new here. Can we all just agree that this needs to stay behind closed doors until we're ready to talk about it? And that way we can air our dirty laundry here? So some of what we have heard, Zach Brown coming out uh, Friday afternoon and saying, I think we're going to avoid talking. I think we're going to avoid getting into specifics of what was discussed this morning. That was what was agreed amongst the teams and Chase and Ross. Overall, the impression is very positive, and I think the direction we're taking is the right direction. There's obviously a lot of detailed questions, but we'll do that behind closed doors. Gunther Steiner over at Haas said that, this is something between a blueprint and a wish list, which is called a proposal, and that's what it was. It's not a, br- a blueprint yet. It's something in between. It's a good starting point, a very good one, actually. For sure, everyone goes away and comes back with questions, and that's his for sure, not mine. <laughs> we are at a point where we need to change something to attract people, attract fans, to do what we need to make the sport the leading sport in the world. So what we know about this what we have heard is it has actually been put forward as proposal again high level is all we've gotten here um strategic initiatives on the power units is that they must be cheaper simpler louder have more power and reduce the necessity of grid penalties it must remain road relevant hybrid and allow manufacturers to build unique and original power units New power unit rules must be attractive for new entrants, and customer teams must have access to equivalent performance. For costs, they believe how you spend the money must be more decisive and important than how much money you spend. While there will be some standardized elements, card differentiation must remain a core value. And they want to implement a cost cap that maintains Formula One's position as the pinnacle of motorsport with state-of-the-art technology. On the revenue front, the new revenue distribution criteria must be more balanced based on meritocracy of the current performance and reward success for the teams and the commercial rights holder. F1's unique historical franchise and value must and will still be recognized. Revenue support to both cars and engine suppliers. 
on the sporting and technical rules and regulations, they must make cars more raceable to increase overtaking opportunities. Engineering technology must remain a cornerstone, but driver skill must be the predominant factor in the performance of the car. The cars must and will remain different from each other and maintain performance differentiators like aerodynamics, suspensions, and power unit performance. However, some areas not relevant to the fans need to be standardized. And finally, when it comes to governance, a simple and streamlined structure between the teams, the FIA, and Formula One. Now, we've heard numbers around the cost cap being bounced around of about 150 million pounds. Um, which seems really low, and I guess and that significantly reduces the budgets of Ferrari and Mercedes. Yeah, and I think Toto Wolf has already come out and said, "Yeah, that that's not reasonable. That's that's not going to work." Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, and my question becomes: I get cost caps, but what? How are they going to get around that? Because you know the teams are going to start trying to figure yeah. out how to get around that. Williams says their budget is in the 150 million pound mm-hmm. range, so that should tell you like where that is in the the scale of things. Um, but Williams has also shown that at that and and, and same thing with Force India because I think Force India is pretty close to it too. And we're going to get some reaction from both of them in a second, but I think both of them has shown that with a budget around that number. It is possible to have some level of success in the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, neither team is necessarily racing, but they had been, and Williams is not there this year, and that's a whole other thing, but they have been strong contenders in the mid-pack True. with that number. But being a contender in the mid-pack is not It's win- not winning. Winning races. Yeah. And but if everybody is brought down to that level, that says that it's possible to develop a strong car for less money than what Mercedes and Ferrari are spending. So if you throttle their spending down to that that number, that doesn't mean that they're going to have to put out crap. Well, I understand that, but here's the thing. This year they spend 400 million pounds. I'm spitballing numbers. Mm-hmm. Next year, they get told they can only spend 150 million pounds. Mm-hmm. They're still 300 pa- million pounds ahead of the person that's only spending 150 pounds this year. 150 million pounds this year. Kind of. I realize developmental changes and things like that change, but they have the development. They're already ahead on the developmental curve. Well, that that's where, to to some extent, that's where tying in the implementation of those cost caps can't be done now Mm -hmm. it has to be done as part of a more sweeping rules package introduction now yes in the years before that happens the teams can turn around especially the big budget teams they can divert funds into their current year cars as a long-term investment into the future rules package cars in order to get a leg up that way and arguably mercedes did that with their turbo hybrids for something like seven or eight years so yeah, that's potentially a way around that, but we're two years out. Yeah. That that window of being able to leverage that is, is closing pretty quickly. True. So some of the feedback that we have gotten from uh, Williams, Claire Williams said that she was extremely positive about the meeting. 
Um, she said, I think we've all hoped for change under our new management, and I think today they presented change. For a team like ours, based on what they presented, it was an extremely good day for us. I came back thinking, let's crack open some champagne because from our perspective, if we can get these new regulations through and if Liberty or FOM do everything they say they're going to do, then from our perspective, I know that William's future is safe. That's not to say we were on the brink or anywhere close, but today's sport, the way it's structured and with the financial disparity between teams, then the likelihood of William's survival in the medium or long term is looking pretty bleak. Everything they presented from revenue distribution, cost caps was absolutely everything we want to see in 2021 and beyond. Wow. Now, Bob Fernley over at Force India said it's very encouraging the direction it's going in. We're keen to support it. We have to respect the bigger teams have to make the biggest changes, and we have to help in that process. However, it can't be just a one-way deal as it was a few years ago when we were basically given a, a fait accompli on current revenue deals. Overall, if the direction becomes healthier and the values of the teams become stronger, it's good for everybody. That's what Liberty and the FIA are trying to achieve. So, yeah, we'll see where this shakes out. Mm -hmm. Now, Ross Braun also said that in terms of trying to rethink Formula One and how it works, that maybe it's time to rethink the race weekend again, particularly qualifying. Uh, I fear this one. Qualifying actually works. It does, and the last time they monkeyed with qualifying, it was, it, bad. was, it, it was a raging dumpster fire. It was bad, and they did roll it back to two races in, but they have to be very careful. Qualifying works. Yeah. Well, what Ross Braun says that they're considering doing is in an attempt to possibly diversify the starting grid, and I don't think that this is going to work this way, but he says in, in a thought of possibly diversifying the starting grid, maybe we consider changing qualifying into a race in its own right. So instead of time sessions with dropouts, it's another race. Now, I don't know how they would necessarily figure out the grid for that race, possibly based on free practice time because this idea has been bounced around a little bit of okay well what if your, your free practice times actually mattered for something mm -hmm. so maybe the idea is your free practice times matter for something that sets you up for a position on a grid for a saturday race arguably potentially a shorter race maybe an hour race since that's what qualifying is is an hour maybe an hour long race and the results of that go to are what dictates the the grid for Sunday. I, I think the problem is that you're going to run into a lot of situations where you're going to have the, the driver and a team that does well on Saturday is the same driver and team that's going to do well on Sunday. And it's, it's not going to necessarily mix things up well. Right. I don't think it'll accomplish what they think it could accomplish i i, I think in what you'll end up with in q3 is or, or not q3 in free practice three you're going to have teams who are going to go and do the the low fuel super sticky soft ultra plush tire run to lay down the blistering speed or, or the blistering time to give themselves the best chance of a pole for the Saturday race that they can then keep for the Sunday race. And I, I don't know if that's really 
The idea that I've seen kick around that I do think is kind of interesting is what if you had third car driven by young driver, test and development driver, something along those lines. The qualifying was them in third car on Saturday in a random draw race. And based on the results of that race is the formation of the Sunday grid. I don't know. I mean, you're now having somebody else determine whether or not Hamilton gets pole. You know, then pole is not. Pole pole is not based on driver performance. It's based on team performance. Right. That's not necessarily a bad thing and something that wants to be considered a team sport. Well, I understand that part, too, except we have all these records out there about, you know, Hamilton's got the most poles of any driver ever in the history of time. Um, you know, those are records that would they would cease. I mean, you could yeah. no longer compare and therefore his number would no longer grow. You could no longer say he has earned this many pole positions. But it also gives you a chance to get the junior drivers out there like to that. build that farm, build that team, and possibly eliminate the situation of somebody buying their way all the way up with no experience whatsoever. Because now they've got experience in a Formula One car in a development setting against other young drivers. And actually, in order to pull it off, I think you'd probably need two cars from each team. Mm-hmm. But still, and you're getting another race, and it's another chance to root for your team. See, but no other series out there lets the Young Drivers series results affect the main event. I don't like that. I veto that. I am Ferrari. I get my veto. Okay. I'm not going to debate it. It's not going to go anywhere, but... It's, no. it, I think it's an interesting idea. I don't like that. I would be much more interested in doing things like assigning points for qualifying or you know, expanding some of the reward pieces to the other parts of the, the weekend so that they matter more. But I'm opposed to this idea of having young drivers determine experienced drivers' positions on the grid. Okay. Like I said, I'm not, we're not going to debate it because it's not going to. I mean, if there was a sprint race that affected constructor only and was done with young drivers, I might be down with that. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, a, constr- a, a constructor additional point piece that's run by a sprint race for young drivers so that that is encouraged, and I would be down with that idea, but not to affect Hamilton's position on the grid or Vettel's position on the grid or – I mean, what happens if you get an amazing young driver and you get Charles Leclerc up in the pole position? You you have a mixed-up grid, which is what Formula One is looking for. Yeah, but unless they solve the arrow problem, a mixed-up grid doesn't help you. Well, that was the, the next thing I was going to go with is maybe that the, the as part of tackling that, you tackle your arrow issue that's that's preventing your passing. Solve passing before you start messing with mixing up the grid artificially. So let's talk party modes. Yay! Party, party, party. I mean, I could have had party music, but I but I elected not to. I'm going to fight for my right to party. Yeah. 
Well, for starters, Max Verstappen says um, you shouldn't need to to fight for it because despite what Christian Horner says, he doesn't think that party modes should be banned. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. Uh, his feeling is <laughs> and and I, I I like this attitude from from Max because it's along the lines of what we have said. The teams have worked to develop this. They have done this to be better in the sport and deliver better performance. Why are we turning around and trying to penalize and ban this? If the other teams want to do it, let them go ahead and do it. Right. Exactly. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So Mercedes, though, a after the, the furor over their, quote, party mode or qualifying mode, as it was called last year, this year, it's, I think Lewis called it party mode, and that's why they're doing it. No, I thought it was somebody that doesn't have it that called it party mode. I don't know. But, yeah. Um, but Mercedes explained what the engine modes were and how they worked. Okay. Loosely, you know, because they, they don't want to give away no all the No proprietary information yeah. was revealed. So the team revealed that it uses three basic modes on its engines. One for the majority of the free practice sessions, one for the majority of qualifying, and one for the majority of the race. Um, all three can be altered with various subsettings for different situations, which control re whether electrical energy is being net deployed over a lap, recovered, or used in a balanced manner, with energy deployment and recovery balancing each other out. Both Lewis and Valtteri switched their race mode to lower performance during the Australian Grand Prix when they were stuck in traffic and the turbulent air of the cars overhead in order to cool the engines and prevent them from overheating. It added a safety car presents a similar challenge. Drivers want to conserve energy in a power unit, so the engine mode is set to reduce the duty and cool the hardware. Um, now, the other thing to remember is that they want to minimize the wear and tear, especially given everything that's going on. They have specific targets that they have to meet for how long the engine has to last before they swap them out. So... These engine modes are also being used to protect the engine to some extent. Right. Um, according to Toto Wolf, the qualifying mode is only required for a few laps each race weekend, and usage varies according to the competitive context. Sometimes this qualifying mode will be used throughout qualifying, and sometimes only in the final Q3 session. Um, in terms of how they determine how long to, to run them and power modes and all of that stuff, the available mileage is dictated to by what is termed the phase document, which defines the limits to which the power unit may be used during each raced weekend, and which is the same for the works cars and the Mercedes customer teams. And that's important. Remember, there's a rule that says you can't be doing it different. Mm -hmm. Power unit modes are defined when the first set of hardware is tested in Bricksworth, and the mileage limit is determined by the success of the long-run program. Some of these are circuit-specific, others are more general. Making the call on which mode to use can either be the driver's decision or through the advice of the engineering team who will communicate over the radio which settings to adjust and which mode to switch to. Okay. So that's what Mercedes has to say on it. Now, that being said, Lewis doesn't know why coming out of qualifying in Bahrain um, – Mercedes doesn't really seem to have the pace over Ferrari like they did in Australia. Yeah, but it seems that they're having trouble with their tires overheating. There is. Um, it, it, 
Lewis doesn't necessarily think it's a tire issue. Really? Um, he says um, he doesn't know why they don't have the pace that they had last weekend. He said Ferrari didn't have the pace in the last race for whatever reason. Now they're back to normal maybe. We'll find out in the races to come, but what we know is Ferrari has been quick here all weekend, and we've not been able to match them. Looking at Vettel's lap, it didn't look like anything spectacular. It was a very clean lap, but there were a couple of areas where they are particularly stronger than us. When I looked at their lap from the last race, they looked pretty well balanced. Also, and if you look at my lap here, it doesn't look tacky. It was quite a clean lap in general. It has not been that difficult for Mercedes. Ferrari were just quicker in the end. Now, you recall last year, again, going back to your comment a few minutes ago, Mercedes had a lot of problems last year with overheating the tires. It's why they called the car a diva. They thought these problems were fixed. However, it seems that they're having tire overheating problems yet again. They were really hoping that this, was, this car was more of a princess than a diva. Yeah. Now, we... It does sound like a lot of the teams were struggling this particular weekend with overheating of the tires, and that impacted how they were approaching their hot laps and, and how they were dealing with their in-laps and their out-laps during qualifying. Um, whether or not that's really the issue, we don't know, but Bahrain does have an abrasive surface. It does get hot. Mercedes has been struggling in hot temperatures. Mm -hmm. This could be a bigger issue come Singapore, um, possibly Abu Dhabi at the end of the year, um, possibly down in Mexico. We'll see. Yeah, heat is, is external heat is not helping um, the tire situation, but hopefully they'll figure it out before we get down to Mexico and Abu Dhabi and the, the warmer races, but they haven't had warmer conditions. I mean, that's what this is about. Now, Mercedes actually, their halo is part of their cooling system and, and the ventilation of the engines. Really? So you, you have to look really close in order to see it. But the design of the halo under normal circumstances, like an Australia-type race where it's not that hot, um, the airflow out of the car to cool the engine comes through the base of the halo in a race like bahrain they actually go and change some of the bodywork plates just outside of the the base of the halo to provide additional there's actually like gills in the base of the halo on the mercedes mm. they change out the bodywork to add additional gills on either side of the base of the halo so that there is further airflow and further cooling in a race like bahrain i did not know that but that's like really smart and mm -hmm. cool stuff i mean i love it when <clears throat> i really do and as much as i hate the halo because it looks stupid um, I am getting more used to it. I will yeah. say that. Um, and they're integrating it more. Because remember I was talked about the shark fan last year and how much I hated the shark fan. Yeah. And then over time, I kind of got like used to it. You didn't see it. And you didn't see it as much because people started to figure out how to not just slap it, you know, bolt it onto the back of the car. One of the things I'm finding absolutely fascinating is when they take a piece of required equipment and start leveraging it to actually integrate it into the car. To... to Use the halo as both a safety feature and a cooling device. That's genius to me. Yeah, yeah. It 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 actually impacts the way the air flows around the car, and they they vent it through and around the halo. 
And if you look really close at the pictures along the side of the halo between Australia or at Australia and here, you can see in Australia there's a blank plate in one area, and here there's gills. Oh wow, cool! Yeah, I mean it's it's noticeable that, that when they make these changes. That's cool stuff. Um. There's also changes in the tires coming for a couple of races. Yeah, I read about this this morning. Um, Mario Izola has said that they have requested from the FIA to have slightly different tread thickness for the tires that they're going to be giving the teams in Barcelona, Silverstone, and Paul Ricard. And it has to do, it's going to be a, um, a lower it's, it, it's, not it's a thin. thinner yeah it's 0.4 millimeters thinner it's it's not a lot but those are our key things but it's specifically around attraction for these new resurfaced tracks yeah it, it's to reduce overheating but the other thing that teams are going to need to keep in mind is that this actually results in a weight reduction per set of one kilogram the teams need to take that into account Wow. I didn't think it would be a whole kilogram. Yeah. Four millimeters of... No, of 0. 0.4 millimeters. 0. 0.4 millimeters of tire tread reduction across four tires results in a one kilogram weight reduction across an entire set of tires. That's incredible. And, yeah. you know, this is kind of funny because as I was... I read the, the headline in the article, the first couple of paragraphs. You know how much I love talking tires. Yes. So tell me this. Mm-hmm. When you thought of tread, and they were talking about this tread reduction, first thing you thought of was like our all-weather tires. Slicks, and they're like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? So the first thing I thought of was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Like an all-weather tire, you're going to mm-hmm. reduce the tread. But wait a minute. They're on slicks. They don't have a tread. But they do have a tread, yeah. even though they're slicks. That's just like that's um, counterintuitive to me. <laughs> yeah, now the the – this is certainly an unusual change. It's not an unprecedented change. Um, Pirelli did something actually very similar to this for Spa and Monza in 2011 and 2012. Now, the other thing is Force India's scheduled test for uh, Shanghai. Uh, that has been canceled for logistic reasons. Oh. Speaking of Force India, um, going into this weekend, they brought a new front wing. Uh, they only brought one of them, though, which was supposed to go to Sergio Perez, not to Esteban Ocon. Um, oh, I, I guess very thankful that it didn't go to him. Yeah, I guess it didn't work really well on Friday. Um, according to Autosport, they've decided not to run the wing at all. However, Channel 4 seemed to be under the impression that Perez still had the wing in qualifying. So I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know where the wing has gone off to, but G- it was given, not a good thing. Given his overall performance, it, it's likely that Ocon didn't have the wing and Perez still had the wing for qualifying. I don't know. Right. But Ocon did out-qualify out Perez. That's, that's my point. Yes. Um, over at Haas, they're making some changes, too. They did the, uh, a fire drill across their mechanic crew. <laughs> yeah. Gunther Steiner has told us what they've done. They've swapped out some positions. Uh, he said the main reason is not because they did the mistake, but getting their confidence back. Mm-hmm. He said if you keep on doing the same and the guys are not confident, the risk you have a mistake again is high, so we swap positions. You pair different people and give them different jobs because you need so many people anyway, and that is what we did for this race, and that is what we are doing since yesterday practicing. Um, they also he also said that they put an additional person in 
which think about that. How many people are they going to have running around the, the pit lane and the pit box during a two-second uh, pit stop? But they've actually put one more person into the, the crew uh, whose whole job is to try and catch and, and hopefully detect if there's a problem and stop them before the car gets released. Well, I can understand that. I just don't know how it would work because I don't know if they were running one person shorter than other people. But, I mean, everybody seems to have about the same size pit crew. So how you – I mean, that whole car gets surrounded by people. There's three people on every tire. Yeah. Um, Plus the the front jack man, the rear jack man, the lollipop guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Now, I also, he was interviewed, by the way, yesterday was Gunther Steiner's birthday. He was interviewed by Channel 4 yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that he explained was that when they went, got to Australia in free practices, where they normally would have done a lot of pit stop practicing, they had to not do as many because they had some other issues with the car. Yeah. And while the cars were doing very well, I mean, they were doing very well. They were trying to fix some other pieces, so they cut back on their pit stop practices. And he says that was a mistake, but you only have so many hours in the day. Mm-hmm. And they had to prioritize the car over the pit stop practices, and they assumed wrongly that everybody was well-practiced because they did, they'd never have a problem before. And then yeah. this one, and quite frankly, I think that the first one was an honest mistake, and the second one was nerves. Um, you know, I think that that's the way that works. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't the same guy that made the same mistake, but I just think it was nerves and um, pressure. And they, he said that they were doing pit stop practices the at uh, Bahrain. The first couple did not go very well. He had everybody shake it off and. Um, then they got, they found a groove and they've got to get their groove back. And I think it was Gene Haas that said, if they have a decent result here in Bahrain, it's forgotten, but until they have a decent result, they won't be forgotten. And that, that's rough. It was Grosjean. It was Grosjean. It was Grosjean after Australia. But I have to tell you, even Grosjean admits that when he first started the sport, he would not have be as philosophical as he is today. Yeah. He was an absolute just team player the the right guy i mean his interview with channel four absolutely gave me chills <laughs> because it's it this is the guy you want in your office yeah this is he 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 wrapped his arms around the team he told him it would be okay even though he's emotional and he had his head his helmet in his hands when he got out of the car by the time he got back to that pit stop, it was about making sure that the team stayed together and didn't lose it and understood that everybody makes a mistake sometimes and it's okay. Yeah. Wow. Th- this apparently took a huge psychological toll on the mechanics. Oh, yeah. Um, between the fact that they were on track for their best ever finishes and double points best ever finishes and that they happened within one lap of each other this apparently took a massive toll on the mechanics. Um, so, yeah, we'll see how that shakes out. I'm anxious to see their pit stop today. I bet that everybody will be watching it, which I'm sure is no pressure on them. But just to have them come back from this, I think, will be a big deal. Um, but I just I cannot praise Roman Grosjean enough. I mean, he's not just saying all the right things. 
he did the right things. Mm-hmm. And like I said, if you could copy that attitude and put it in my office and in your office and probably the offices of everybody that listens to our show, that's the guy you want that is supportive in the winning times and in the losing times. And that's important. So be be Roman. That's the that's the lesson. That's our wheel of morality for today. Be like unto Roman. <laughs> be the Roman of your of your life. Okay. Um Max Verstappen had um pretty dismal qualifying. Spinning wow. out in Q1 at turn 2 and putting a car into the wall. Um they took a look at the data, they figured out what happened and it's actually really kind of bizarre. Um, he said that uh, they studied the data a bit, and there was a sudden 150 horsepower increase that happened as he hit the curb. And when it did, it just dumped that extra 150 horsepower into the back tires, and away the car went. He, he was on the limit as he would normally be, and all of a sudden that extra power hit, and that was it. He was gone. Wow. Yeah. That so they don't know why. frightening. Well, I'm sure that Max doesn't have fear, but... Um, well, I don't think he knew that it was all of a sudden that there was this power dump. It was just that he lost traction and the rear, the rear end took off on him. Yeah. So I don't think he necessarily knew that there was that sudden power hit that, that came out of it. Now, why now, that happened... Now, can figure out where to find that power when they want yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be interesting. So... His teammate, Daniel Ricardo, still doesn't have a contract. Right. There's negotiations going on. Daniel has said, now again, remember, th- this is Daniel Ricardo, so you- you've got to really wrap your head around this concept. But he said, you know, as-, as they're going through the negotiations, he's trying to really be careful and not alienate his team as part of the negotiations. And this is where I remind you, this is Daniel Ricardo. <laughs> True. This is the guy who had a win taken away from him at Monaco because of a horrific pit stop error. And really all he said was, I'm pissed off. I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) That was the extent of it. Yeah. He's never said a bad word about his team, even when his team has let him down. Yeah. So what what he said going into the – the, uh, his negotiations is sure I may have more than one option and it's the first time and it's exciting and it's great but I still want to go about it in the right way I don't want to disrespect anyone or bag anyone maybe I do move on but I'm not going to go and say it's because these guys are a bunch of this whatever I do whatever I do they've done a lot for my career so it would be wrong for me to speak badly about them in any kind of scenario I think that's just me. I'm not that guy. I'll speak my mind if I feel like it's what I deserve or whatever, but I'll always remain respectful. So as for the guy who possibly is, could take his seat if he leaves, who wants his seat, who is, trying, who is plotting ways to maybe give Daniel Ricardo a poison banana. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> who... who shockingly it appears now has experience with poison bananas because if you ask him that's now what he says is why he got sick in the car Kyle, Carlos Sainz says it was a poison banana it was a bad banana not a poisoned banana no actually he, he the the word he used in the interview the first time he talked about this was that he thought it was a poison banana <laughs> 
Again, knowing that Carlos English is not his first language. We're going to go with bad banana. Huh? <laughs> he, he did later say that he thought maybe it was a bit off, but initially he was calling it a poisoned banana. <laughs> I, he wasn't I, saying that somebody poisoned him, well, just that it was a poisoned banana. Yeah, you never know. I mean, in this day and age. Um, but... Okay. But but he also says, you know, he was talking about his, his situation at Renault, because it is a unique situation, is that um, he says, I've not heard of many drivers who are on loan. It's more of a football team. It's a bit of a strange situation. I'm a special case at the moment. That's why I can't let it get into my head. I need to just do what I was doing at Toro Rosso, having a good race every time I go out on track, and then things fall for themselves, like it did at Toro Rosso. Who would have told me when I was at Toro Rosso that this year I would be at Renault? No one. It's a very special situation. <laughs> yeah. He's part of the team, but not part of the team. He's on loan. I get all of that. It's got to be rough for him. Yeah. So our last story. You know, you thought the whole thing about Grid Girls was over. It'll We're done. Never it, was, it was settled. We, we, we had this sorted out. It wasn't coming back again, right? Yeah, that you... never happens. It's Formula One. Why is it I can't find my over sound clip? <sighs> I should have had this queued up in advance. Well, I don't have it, so we won't we won't play our, our over sound clip. Is that over under? No, that that's the, the animal under. house. Over. It's not oh. nothing is over until we say it's, it's over. over. Was it over when when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? <laughs> Germans. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, don't stop him. He's on a roll. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So, w- w- okay, we, so we, we've done we improvised. <laughs> we improvised. Well, word is that both Russia and Monaco want grid girls back for their races. Oh, do that. And we'll be working to bring them back. Mm-hmm. Now, in particular, we got we have. Um, some quotes from Russian Deputy Prime Minister Dmitry Kozak, who, it turns out, happens to oversee the Russian Grand Prix. Oh, really? Yes. I'm glad to know that that's a uh, Deputy Prime Minister's job. Yeah. What he had to say, speaking to Interfax, was, if we can reach an agreement, we will revive this tradition. Moreover, our girls are the most beautiful. Oh, naturally. That's why we should bring back grid girls for two races is because now we're going to have a war of pretty girls. Oh, no. Oh, no. Because he went on to speak to the Associated Press and told the Associated Press that he disagreed with the switch from grid girls to grid kids because, quote, it's wrong at races to lead out children who are frightened of mechanical things. You need grown-ups. In all kinds of motorsport, girls advertise the cars and it looks harmonious and pretty. Away you go. Oh my word! Grid, the, and grid never, kids afraid of mechanical things. Yeah, the the grid kids who are selected by the local auto auto sports club because they part they are they, participating they in race. the karting championship. They race. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my word. <laughs> We're not talking about Johnny who will not ride a roller coaster. We are talking about Susie who has raced in karting for four years. <coughs> there is a huge difference. So 
Michael Bory, who is the Club de Monaco president, he told Forbes, um, we had no problems with Liberty Media except for the grid girl issue. They're pretty and the cameras will be on them once again. Our American friends assumed that it could hurt the feminine feelings when employing young women to carry our signs. Oh, and, and th this quote that I'm saying right here, this, this is from the Monaco Matin, which is a local newspaper. He said, our American friends assumed that it could hurt the feminine feelings when employing young women to carry signs. Our hostesses complete model and PR schools. They perform during the Grand Prix at events that are in line with their training, and they are paid for it. Oh, so it's all okay if they're paid for it. Well, as long as you pay them, it's all fine. It's not demeaning as long as you leave a little bit of money on the nightstand. What? <laughs> Actually, I was going to go with in in the scale of bad comments. I think Dimitri Kozak's is actually worse. Well, yes, his It's only slightly better coming from the guy on the go. <laughs> Dimitri, slightly. <laughs> Dimitri says we should bring good girls back because our girls are the prettiest. And and because kids are afraid of mechanical things. <laughs> Maybe Russian children are afraid of mechanical things. I mean, during the Cold War, did they have much mechanical? The Cold War, you mean? Cold War. Not did world. they have much mechanical things? Because, you know, it was frightening. Um, well, it was Russia, so it was steampunky. Yeah, it was steampunky. Um, okay, so Russia wants them because their girls are the prettiest. Monaco wants them because they pay their girls. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> you can't make it up. I mean. <laughs> yes. What's the guy's name from Monaco? It is. Um, oh, I love Michael Bory, or is it Michelle Bory? Mr. Bory. Okay. Yes. You will offend feminine interests, period. Full stop. You are done. <laughs> Liberty, don't listen to these people. Seriously. Hey, in, in other news, and it's actually not in our lineup here, um, Prince Albert of Monaco yeah. said that um, they're actually looking, and, and it's really far out if they're going to do this. Nothing has been nailed down. But they're actually looking in Monaco to make changes to the circuit. Really? Now, what he has said is that, you know, it's a short circuit. It's kind of narrow. But there is a project that is ongoing right now in Monaco. And, of course, I don't know this because I'm not as familiar with Monaco as, you know, somebody who lives there. But there is a project going on in Monaco that they are building a new area in Monaco. There, there's a landfill project. So they're reclaiming more land from the med to expand the total area of the the principality so one of the things that they are looking at doing as this project uh proceeds is possibly making modifications to the formula one layout to potentially take in this new area so he says it's, it's still easily three to five years out before they were to do such a thing but he did say that it is something that is being discussed. Nice. That'll be interesting. I, it, that's a hard one to swallow <clears throat> because that course is such a classic. It, you know, it depends on how they do it. You know, it, it, if it's if you're extending the course, and possibly, I I don't know if your your development of that area is taking in line with the understanding that you're going to race through it. 
it actually could be something that could add a lot of value to that race. Yes, you continue running it through the tight and twisty parts and all of the classic curves, but at one point, you know, you, you come through the straight and you make a left instead of a right, and you have maybe four more corners through this new area before it dumps you back over at Roscast and you're back on the old track again. Well, it has to be done with a great mindset because that is such a well-known course. Mm -hmm. And it. my biggest concern is not knowing where they're going to expand, you know, reclaim mm -hmm. land and not know what could – you wind up you're going to wind up bypassing some portion of the track is um to go out and around not, or, well possibly I yeah guess. I, I mean because they they at one point they had extended the Bahrain track and it was basically just a loop off of one of the corners is what they did you, all that you really lost from the the track was like 30 feet you know it wasn't well, a yes lot. but the Bahrain track is not iconic no my my concern is, you know, if you if you decided that you were going to not do the hairpin, or you weren't going to be at Roscas or the swimming pool. I mean, it, it's those things like <clears throat> you have to go through and go. Okay, these are all the key things that make Monaco Monaco. Yeah. Um, if they don't go through the tunnel, that that's because I know knowing where that tunnel is is kind of like if they don't go through the tunnel because if that's where they're putting the land and they go around the tunnel, that changes the feel of that track. Yeah, I think they're doing it, and, and actually what they could do, which would be kind of interesting, I think they're actually on the other side of the track. Mm. Um, so down over by the swimming pool. So what could be kind of interesting, and, and again, since Monaco has tons and tons of money, and there's a ton of tunnels there to begin with, maybe what it is is you, you all of a sudden you make that track into a figure eight, and you dip down... Instead of turning right just past the swimming pool and, and into Roscos, you dip down into a tunnel to turn left, go down into the new area, have a couple of turns in there, and then that's a straightaway up into Roscos and back on. I don't know. I mean, there's a couple of different ideas, and we're not track designers. By <coughs> that's just not even a side job for us. <laughs> um, but it's an interesting thought. I just, you know, I warn Prince Albert, when I talk to him later today, I will um, remind him to just be careful of the iconicness of his track. And and while you're at it, let him know that we're still waiting on our lunch invitation. Well, it, it I've was... been talking to Caroline about that. It's it's matching up our calendars is very very difficult. Okay. You know how busy we are. Okay. I, I, I wouldn't want it to mess with the pinball league. So on that note. <laughs> that is the problem. <laughs> and on that note, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is there is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay. Whew.